Have a first in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Before I get started, everybody's always welcome to record my, my sermons. That's no problem. But I've been told by my general superior I'm not allowed to publish or have anyone publish uh, the sermons. So, for my part, I'm happy to obey uh, Dr. Owen Merritt. Uh, but you want to pray for the superiors because they have to answer for everyone who could be helped and won't be helped. So keep them in your prayers. As usual, the quotes have been cut out and pasted, and there's too many sources to, to cite them without making it all very tedious. Be not drunk with wine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, temperance is a virtue. Now, remember that a virtue is a good habit. A vice is a bad habit. Temperance is a virtue which moderates our sense appetites in regards to the satisfactions and pleasures that are associated with our instincts for self-preservation and for procreation. Paragraph 2290 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks of this virtue, the virtue of temperance, and tells us that, quote, the virtue of temperance disposes us to avoid every kind of excess, the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, or medicine, close quote. The virtue of temperance disposes us to avoid every kind of excess, the abuse of food, alcohol, tobacco, or medicine. So today we're going to spend uh, some time talking about one of the parts of temperance, the virtue which helps us avoid every kind of excess with respect to intoxicating substances, and that is the virtue of sobriety. Sobriety is a virtue that helps us avoid every kind of excess in the use of intoxicating substances. Now, why would we need a special virtue with regards to intoxicating substances? One basic principle one basic truth of the moral life is that wherever there's a special danger of sin, there is need of a special virtue. And that certainly applies to the virtue of sobriety. The virtue of sobriety is needed for the use of substances such as alcohol because of, quote, the rapidity with which they may cause the loss of the use of reason and the ease with which one can form the habit of drinking to excess, close quote. So that's why we need the virtue of sobriety. It's because of the rapidity with which substances like alcohol can cause the loss of reason, and because of the ease which one can form a habit of drinking to excess. In other words, because intoxicating substances of their very nature, that's why they're called intoxicating, can easily cause the loss of the use of reason, and because they're addictive. Because of time constraints, we're not going to speak in any depth about addiction, other than acknowledge that there's a very great danger here, and we all know that. We're going to speak largely of the loss of reason. So what's the problem with the loss of reason? At the level of nature, our greatest natural gift is the use of reason. The use of reason, the use of this greatest natural gift, lifts us up into a whole beautiful universe that's different. Since we have an intellect and a will, we can know the true and the good and the beautiful. We can know right from wrong, even on a natural level. We can recognize that there's one God and so on and so on. So in this sense, we're completely unlike the brood animals who cannot and never will be able to know right from wrong, the true or the good or the beautiful. And parenthetically, uh, this is one point on which 
there's plenty of them, but on one point in which the animal rights people are just completely out of touch with reality. Animals don't know right from wrong, and they don't reason, and they never will. They don't have the use of reason. I mean, <laughs> I'm from Montana. There's way, way more cattle up there than human beings. And yet every fall we ship in Nebraska, and they haven't figured it out yet. And they're not going to either. They're just fugitives from a hamburger, and they don't know that, and they never will. If they had a reason, I think they could gang up on us, but it isn't going to happen. They don't have the use of reason, and sometimes when you hear these Amorites people talk, well, anyway, I digress. The point here is that brute animals don't have the use of reason, and we do. It's our greatest natural gift. And once we see that, once we understand that, it's easy to see why the virtue of sobriety is so important, because the loss of reason, we're not talking about getting knocked out here by a coconut falling off a tree or something, but by the loss of reason, I mean the deliberate loss of reason without a very serious reason is an evil. It's actually an act by which a man is deliberately depriving himself of his greatest natural gift. It's actually an act by which a man actually deliberately lowers himself to the level of a brute animal. The difference, of course, is that an animal cannot lower himself to a level below his nature, but a man can. Pope Pius XII explains this very point, quote, to appreciate the lawfulness of the suppression or lessening of consciousness, one must consider that reasonable and freely controlled activity is the characteristic mark of the human being. The individual will be unable to carry out, for example, his daily work if he remains habitually plunged in a twilight state. Moreover, he has an obligation to relate all his actions according to the demands of the moral order. Since the natural energies and the blind instincts left to themselves are incapable of guaranteeing a regulated activity, it follows that the use of the reason and of the higher faculties is indispensable both for seeing clearly the precise terms of obligation and for applying them to particular cases. Hence derives the moral obligation of not depriving oneself of this consciousness without true necessity. Close quote Pope Pius XII. Reasonable and freely controlled activity is the characteristic mark of the human being who has an obligation to relate all his actions according to proper morals. He, therefore, it falls that the use of reason is indispensable for both seeing clearly the precise terms of moral obligations and for applying them to particular cases. Hence derives the moral obligation of not depriving oneself of this consciousness without true necessity. Since we have a moral obligation of not depriving ourselves of the use of right reason without true necessity, we'll get to those true necessities shortly. Since we have a moral obligation of not depriving ourselves of the use of right reason without true necessity, and since intoxicating substance can easily and quickly do that, it's easy to see why we need a virtue like sobriety. Now all this is not to say that drinking and alcohol is somehow bad or evil in itself. When moderated by the virtue of sobriety, the use of intoxicating drinks, and I quote from Moral Manual, is, quote, not only lawful, but even virtuous. For example, for the health of the body, for lifting one's spirits, or for contributing to greater sociability at a gathering, close quote. When moderated by the virtue of sobriety, the use of intoxicating drinks is not only lawful, but even virtuous. For example, for the health of the body, 
like giving a hot toddy to someone who's sick, for example, lifting one's spirits, or for contributing greater sociability at a gathering. What was our Lord's first miracle at Our Lady's request? It was making a lot of water into wine at a wedding. <coughs> we continue, quote, The use of intoxicating beverages is not evil, nor is it unlawful, but it may become evil by reason of some special circumstances. For example, if the person is easily influenced by intoxicating drinks, if one drinks to excess, or if one gives scandal to others by drinking, close quote. Well, that's just common sense. Drinking alcohol is not evil, nor is it unlawful, but it can become evil because of circumstances. If you're really easily influenced by alcohol, if you drink to excess, or you give scandal to others by drinking. You know, if you're from a family of diabetics, it's probably a bad idea to just constantly chow down on sweets, not because sweets are bad in themselves, but they may be very, in a particular way, particularly dangerous to you because of, in your health, because of your circumstances. It'd be similar if you're from a family that struggles a lot and has a lot of alcoholics in the family. It's probably not a good idea for you to drink. You know, why risk it? We continue, quote, on account of the greater spiritual ills that result from their insobriety, the virtue of sobriety is more imperative in certain individuals. Thus, there are some who do greater spiritual harm to themselves by intoxication. For example, the young, whose passions are more easily inflamed, and females who are more readily taken advantage of. And hence, in 1 Timothy 3.11 and Titus 2.6, St. Paul recommends sobriety to women and young men particularly. There are also some who do greater harm to others by intoxication, such as those who should instruct others, as St. Paul makes clear in Titus 2.2, or should give good example, which St. Paul addresses in 1 Timothy 3.3, or her rulers over the people, as stated in Proverbs 31.4. Close quote. Of course, all those uh, would apply with special force to priests. Some more excellent advice from a moral manual. The cardinal principle in regard to the use of these drinks is to know both one's needs and capacity and then to observe that measure. Some people are capable of drinking greater quantities than others without showing any evil effects. Again, it may be happened because of physical weariness, emotional fatigue, or excessive hilarity. A person is the more quickly affected by intoxicants. The individual must always be aware of his condition at any given time so that he will be able to apply the rule of reason and moderation. Temperance requires that an individual observe moderation and self-control before, during, and after partaking of intoxicating drinks." Close quote. Okay. So as we've heard, Pope Pius XII taught that the use of reason is necessary for man, since he has the obligation to regulate all his actions according to proper morals, and so he has the moral obligation of not depriving himself of this kind of consciousness without true necessity. So what sort of serious reasons would be morally acceptable for a man to deprive himself of the use of right reason? Everybody knows, it's easy to understand. The moral theologian's answer to this can be lumped into basically under the notion of medical reasons. For example, it's morally acceptable for a man to deprive himself of the use of right reason for the purposes of anesthesia or for the relief of very serious pain. That's just common sense. We've seen that Pope Pius XII taught that man cannot morally deprive himself of the use of reason without true necessity, because reason is necessary to regulate our actions according to proper morals. He also proved the medical use of intoxicants for, for the purposes of anesthesia 
and serious pain relief. Now the Pope addresses the immoral use of intoxicants. Quote, I quote from Pius XII, one may not confuse consciousness or suppress it with the sole object of gaining pleasurable sensations by indulging in drunkenness and injecting poisons intended to secure this state, even if one is seeking only a pleasant state of well-being. Close quote for Pius XII. One may not confuse consciousness or suppress it with the sole object of gaining pleasurable sensations by indulging in drunkenness and injecting drugs intended to secure this state, even if one is only seeking a pleasant state of well-being. So what is the Pope saying in plain English? He's saying it's immoral to get drunk or get high. We'll sum up the teaching of the moral manuals here in regards to alcohol, and then we'll turn to drug use. As we've seen in regards to alcohol, it can, its use can be virtuous. It's meant for nourishing mankind, and used in moderation in accordance with the virtue of sobriety, it is, quote, not only lawful, but even virtuous. And as we saw, the circumstances for health of the body, lifting one's spirits, or contributing to greater sociability at a gathering. We also saw that because of circumstances, such as the case of one would get scandals with others by drinking, drinking could be evil. But now let's talk about the lines, morally speaking, in the consumption of alcohol itself. Where are the moral boundaries? It's easy to keep these in mind if you think of it as a simple beverage when it's being consumed in a moral fashion and as a drug when it's being consumed in an immoral fashion. As a simple beverage, alcohol is not sinful at all if all it produces is a good feeling. The boundary here, so to speak, is described by one moral manual as, quote, a spirit of moderate hilarity and talkativeness, close quote. In modern terms, depending on where you're from, that would translate into something like a buzz or a, slight, a very slight buzz. Anyway, depending on the person, slight buzz, very slight buzz. In other words, up to that point, alcohol adds a touch of conviviality and it doesn't impair the use of reason. In the absence of other circumstances, there's no sin here. And one of the circumstances we be driving, that would probably be, you know, since it's now based on ketones in your breath. Drunkenness has nothing to do with drunkenness, it has to do with your breath. So there's no relationship to behavior. This would probably be illegal, so I'm certainly, you know, if you're gonna drive, so I'm not recommending that, but I'm just saying, this is where the moral boundary is, morally speaking. So in the absence of other circumstances, a very slight buzz is no sin. The idea is roughly analogous to the use of caffeine in coffee. It's generally there. Uh, you, you, you're drinking coffee as a pick-me-up and to make the drinker more alert. You're not taking a whole handful of little white pills to do something crazy and just be ricocheting off the walls. That would be immoral. That's clear enough. Again, this is in the absence of other circumstances. Before we go on, just as a note, um, because of the weakness of human nature, obviously it wouldn't be the brightest thing to shoot for that line every time someone drinks. So, anyway. That's the, the use of alcohol as a simple beverage. Again, as a simple beverage, there's no sin at all if all it produces a good feeling. And again, the boundary here is a slight or very slight buzz depending on the person. In other words, up to that point, it adds a touch of conviviality and doesn't impair the use of reason. There's the key point. It doesn't impair the use of reason. Reason hasn't been impaired. And so, in the absence of other circumstances, there's no sin. Now let's turn to the use of alcohol when it's consumed in an immoral fashion, the use of alcohol as a drug. There are two possibilities here, what the moralists call imperfect drunkenness and perfect drunkenness. Imperfect drunkenness and perfect drunkenness. So first, imperfect drunkenness. Imperfect drunkenness, quote, the sin of imperfect drunkenness 
is a voluntary, so it's not something accidentally happened or somebody uh, poured a really stiff drink that you didn't know, etc. Et so it's a, it's, when we're talking, we're talking about voluntary. It's an act of your will to do this. So the sin of imperfect drunkenness is a voluntary excess in intoxicants carried so far that one is somewhat confused in mind but does not lose the use of reason. Close quote. So the sin of imperfect drunkenness is a voluntary excess in intoxicants carried so far that he's somewhat confused in mind but doesn't use the loose of reason completely. So that's when somebody has made himself deliberately tipsy. Quote, imperfect drunkenness is a venial sin because in the absence of other circumstances, the harm done is not considerable for a tipsy man usually suffers nothing more than a slightly fuddled brain and some unsteadiness of body. Close quote. Perfect drunkenness, it's related to reason. This is what we're talking about here. Perfect drunkenness, quote, the sin of perfect drunkenness is a voluntary excess in intoxicants carried so far that one loses temporarily the use of reason. This does not mean that one must become insensible or fall into a stupor or be unable to walk, but only that one loses the mental power to direct oneself morally, even though one could still retain enough judgment to direct oneself physically, for example, across the street, ascend the stairs safely to find one's quarters without help. Indications of perfect drunkenness are that the intoxicated person no longer distinguishes between right and wrong, perpetrates evils that he would abhor in his right mind, either in speech or behavior, and frequently cannot remember unsobering up the chief things that he said or did while drunk. Close quote. So the sin of perfect drunkenness is a voluntary excess in intoxicants carried so far that one loses temporarily the use of reason. We continue, quote, Perfect drunkenness is a mortal sin because it is a grave disorder to deprive oneself of moral judgment and thus expose oneself to the danger of perpetrating serious crimes and injuries. Moreover, it is a monstrous thing to despoil oneself unnecessarily of reason, the greatest natural good of man, and make oneself for the time being a maniac, more like a beast than a human being." Close quote. So as you can see, it's all related to reason. There's no sin up to very slight buzz at that level because there's no impairment of reason. Imperfect drunkenness has impaired, impaired reason uh, to some degree, and that's why it's a venial sin. And perfect drunkenness has made a person not, uh, not acting according to right reason. Their, their judgment is gone. So we've considered the moral and the immoral use of alcohol. Let's turn to drug use. By this, we're not speaking of the legitimate medical uses of drugs. We're speaking of what is commonly called recreational drug use. We've already heard the teaching of Pope Pius XII that one may not confuse consciousness or suppress it with the sole object of gaining pleasurable sensations by indulging in drunkenness and injecting drugs intending to secure this state, even if one is only seeking a pleasant state of well-being. So you have all the principles there, but we'll continue. We can get some idea of the morality of recreational drug use by considering a word found two places in sacred scripture. In Galatians 5.20 and in the Apocalypse 18.23, the inspired inerrant word of God uses a word which is usually going to be translated sorcery in the sense of witchcraft or spells. But that same word used by God as an inspired word is pharmakia. It can also be translated drug use in the sense of recreational drug use. So scripturally speaking, recreational drug use can be seen as equivalent to sorcery. 
The Catechism of the Catholic Church directly addresses this moral problem with very strong words in paragraph 2291, and I quote, The use of drugs inflicts very grave damage on human health and life. Their use, except on strictly therapeutic grounds, is a grave offense. Clandestine production of and trafficking in drugs are scandalous practices. They constitute direct cooperation in evil since they encourage people to practice is gravely contrary to the moral law." Close quote. So the use of drugs inflicts very grave damage on human health and life. Their use, except on strictly therapeutic grounds, is a mortal sin. Clandestine production of and trafficking in drugs are scandalous practices. Making and dealing drugs constitute direct cooperation evil since they encourage people to practice as gravely contrary to the moral law. And by the way, this includes marijuana. I don't know why people think, I mean, maybe because out west, you know, I've lived in, Port, in Oregon and in Alaska where it's just sort of the background of the, the community. That doesn't have anything to do with the fact that people are walking around with a joint in their mouth all the time. It has no bearing on whether it's moral or not. It's immoral. It's immoral. So it's not like there's some kind of, well, this drug is a, no, except for strictly therapeutical uh, use. That's the teaching of the church. So the use of recreational drugs is a mortal sin. In other words, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that the use of recreational drugs has the same moral gravity as using alcohol to reach perfect drunkenness. But it isn't too hard to understand. The first thing to note about this category of intoxicants is that unlike alcoholic beverages, they have absolutely nothing to do with nourishing us. And that means that when drugs are used recreational, they're used for one thing and one thing only. And we all know that. You don't actually need the priest to point that out. Why do people take recreational drugs? To get high, to get a good feeling, to medicate themselves in order to deal with reality, to party, to have a pleasant state of well-being, etc., etc. Recreational drugs, all of them, are substances which of their very nature are intoxicants of various types, and morally speaking, their use is analogous to perfect drunkenness. You don't need me to go down a list of all the evil fruits, the law breaking their purchase and the consumption and their manufacture, the points made by the catechism of the clandestine production and trafficking and drugs are scandalous practices, and by scandal it leads other people into sin, Making and dealing drugs constitute direct cooperation in evil, since they encourage people to practice it directly contrary to the moral law. The corruption of the youth, the sins and crimes of theft, the sins of, against purity, the addictions, the phenomena of the burnout, other psychological and physical damage to longtime users, the destruction of families and communities. Those are just a few of the evil fruits of this scourge from hell. And it's impacted every one of us here. Every one of us. As Pope Pius XII taught in 1957, that's a full 60 years ago, quote, facts show that the abuse of drugs leads to the complete neglect of the most fundamental demands of personal and family life. It is therefore entirely reasonable for the public authorities to intervene to regulate the sale and the use of these drugs so as to remove them from, from, remove from society serious physical and moral harm. Close quote, Pope Pius XII. And what are we doing over here in state after state after state? Decriminalizing them. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. Let's close with a story about a Catholic 
who really struggled with this problem, a Chinese man named Marqi Zanqing, who was an opium addict at the time of his death. He's raised in a Catholic family in 19th century China, and as a well-off doctor who served the poor for free, had been a leader in the Catholic community. But he became ill with a violent stomach ailment, and he treated himself with opium, and unfortunately, soon he became addicted to it. Mark went to confession frequently, but he kept using the opium, and he didn't amend his life. He kept using the opium. Now that situation is similar to that of a penitent who keeps confessing uh, using contraception, but doesn't amend his life. The one who keeps confessing having relationships outside of marriage, but keeps living with a woman, not his wife. One who keeps confessing sins of impurity, but doesn't get the filter on his phone. The one who keeps confessing sins of drunkenness, but won't keep away from the bar where he keeps a bottle of whiskey stashed under his bed. Now in each one of those cases, a penitent like that couldn't honestly make the act of contrition. Why? Because he has to be resolved to avoid the sin and the near occasion, huh? And since true contrition is part of the matter of confession, and true confession isn't feeling bad, it isn't like I feel really bad, it's not a feeling of sorrow, it's a firm resolve to avoid the sin and the near occasion of sin, then in each one of these kind of cases, confessions wouldn't be valid. Now, Padre Pio uh, typically would refuse to absolve about a third of his penitents, and we know that from the penitents themselves. Um, and this was the reason why. He could see, because Padre Pio could see things that the rest of us can't, he could see they were lacking in true contrition. And the shock of having a saint like that refuse to absolve a penitent until he reformed his life usually shook these guys up so much they'd finally get serious about contrition and start making good confessions, and they loved him because he refused him. It's really a meditation. Anyway, so without a firm resolve to avoid sin, the near occasion of sin, confession is invalid. And so it happened that after some time, Mark's confessor told him to stop coming back until he could actually make a good confession because he was still using opium. Now at this point, instead of recognizing such a confession not only has uh, their eternal salvation at heart, and only has their eternal salvation at heart, some people might have stormed out of the church in anger. See, instead of recognizing that a confessor like that only had their eternal salvation at heart, some people might have stormed out of the church in anger, blaming the priest for driving them away. And it would be fair if the priest was rough about all that and didn't gently explain why the penitent wasn't yet ready to be absolved, it could easily make a horrible situation almost unbearable. That is true. But Mark didn't give up. Even though he kept on using opium, he also kept on going to Mass. He didn't let that stop him. In fact, he kept that up for 30 years, the whole time in which he was unable to receive the sacraments. For 30 years, he kept going to Mass. He knew he had to go to Mass, and he knew he couldn't receive the sacraments because he hadn't kicked the opium habit. So for those 30 years, he kept praying for the grace of Martha. He prayed for the grace of Martha, since it seemed pretty clear to him that, that was the only way that he was going to be saved. In 1900, when the Boxer Rebellion rose up, and they went after foreigners and Christians. Mark was rounded up with dozens of other Christians, including his son, 
six grandchildren, two daughters-in-law. No threat could shake him, no torture could make him waver. He was determined to follow the Lord, who had never abandoned him. So as Mark and his family dragged a prisoner away to their execution, his grandson looked at him, Grandpa, where are we going? Mark said, we're going home. He begged to be killed last. So none of his family would have to die alone. And they granted a wish. So he stood behind side all nine of them as they were beheaded. And in the end, while he was singing her litany, he was beheaded. He's a canonized saint. St. Mark Chi Chen singing. His feast day is on July 9th. As one author notes, St. Mark Chi Chen is a beautiful witness to the grace of God. Constantly at work in the most hidden ways. To God's ability make saints out of the most unlikely among us. And the grace poured out upon those who remain faithful, even if it may seem like the church herself is driving them away. Close quote. Let's ask for his intercession for all addicts and for all those who are unable to receive the sacraments. They'll have the grace, the courage, faithfully keep coming to Mass even when they can't receive the sacraments, then at least at the end they'll receive the grace of a happy death. St. Margie Santin, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.